cutting-edge conversations with the Quant community. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast, Risk.net podcast on Quant Finance. I'm Mauro Cesar, Quant Finance Editor of Risk, and today we are talking about fat tails, portfolio optimization, and LDI portfolios. We do that with Ian Rosenzweig, Portfolio Manager at Pine Tree Market Neutral and Visiting Senior Research Fellow at King's College London. Hi, Ian. Hi, Mauro. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Great to have you in our studio. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good, good, good. So, just to start, uh, as a way of introduction, what, what do you do at Pine Tree Market Neutral? Um, so, I mean, Pine Tree is, is a small equity, equities market neutral quant fund. Um, I mean, I'm one of the two portfolio managers there. And like you said, apart from that, I have acad- an academic affiliation at King's College. Um, and I also do some quant consulting through a firm called uh, Morgan Hill Consultants. And we have a big practice with insurances and some kind of with pension funds and with hedge funds as well. Good. So you are uh, well-versed and you know that industry that we are talking about I've, a bit today. Yes, I've been around for yes quite a while. So yeah, I've, I've seen pretty much you know everything, done pretty much everything in the industry. Good, good. Yeah. Which is particularly timely given uh, given what happened in the past few months on uh, the LDI portfolio insurance and indeed, pension funds. Indeed. Um, now, you have published a lot on portfolio optimization before. For example, a couple of years ago, we published in Risk your paper on... Uh, kurtosis-based portfolio optimization. Uh, I understand you, the paper you just published with us uh, is titled Fat Tails uh, and Optimal LDI Portfolios. It's a expansion, continuation, generalization, uh, generalization of that work. Um, may I ask you what is the motivation and why did you decide to introduce a new tool for handling uh, uh, fat tails, extreme returns? Um, I mean, motivation kind of developed as we went on with this, I mean, my primary motivation was um, I was doing some unrelated work outside of finance and I encountered a method called independent component analysis, uh, which is used to separate mixture of signals into its independent components. Um, and I was looking at that and I thought, mm, you know, this might be interesting to look in the con- look at in, in the context of financial time series. Um, so, you know, I kind of started thinking about how would one use it and what where one could get with that and that's what motivated that um, first kurtosis based optimization um, paper because you know the core ICA or textbook ICA is based on separation of signals by kurtosis Um, and then that in the finance context kind of leads into portfolio optimization by kurtosis Um, so that led to some you know fairly interesting results and then obviously you know one kind of sits on that one thinks about it one one chats to people about that um, and that was a you know fairly innocuous remark by somebody about you know how some other portfolio optimizations also lead to kind of slower increases with um, component returns, um, and how that's obviously linked to how we actually allocate on trading desks because in in, tra- in trading desks we don't necessarily double the allocation if you expect the return doubles mm-hmm. right we pretty much allocate fixed amounts. Um, and there was this innocuous remark which kind of said, oh, well, this is a lot closer to this fixed allocation. So that got me thinking, okay, well, maybe there is something to this that can lead us in the direction of this, uh, these fixed allocations and, and um, kind of, in essence, bridge the gap between, let's say, CAPM on one side mm-hmm. and the market practice on the other side. Um, so there was a follow-up paper in Wilmot which discussed that, which was basically generalization uh, from 
optimizing portfolios by kurtosis to optimizing portfolios by moments of arbitrary order mm-hmm. and in particular there's a limit of taking the uh, uh, taking the order of the penalty moment to infinity and you know in essence penalizing by a moment of infinite order um, so we kind of get to the whole this whole f- continuous family of let's say allocations so on one hand we get the Gaussian allocation which is the standard classical finance allocation you know, um, uh, modern portfolio theory from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And then as we increase this parameter K, we kind of focus more and more on the fat tails. And then finally, we've got the limit where we let K go to infinity. And in this limit, we are, in essence, in the extremal limit. So now we're interested in extreme fat tails or the extreme retu- extremal returns of the underlying. So it's a, it's a sort of nice... Um, let's say, continuous parameterization, which takes you all the way from the classical portfolio optimization to, let's say, minimax portfolio optimization um, for extreme returns. Um, The motivation for LDI, I guess, came later on. I mean, just thinking more generally, yes, especially after the LDI. Oh, it wasn't so much uh, after the LDI crisis. I mean, I started working on it before Mm -hmm. the LDI crisis broke up. Um, but I did kind of, obviously, I was in the market in 2008, 2009. So, you know, once you've lived through something like that, that's always at the back of your mind, right? And and um, um, I've seen firsthand, you know, how some of these things develop and why they develop. Um, so, obviously, I have been thinking in those terms. And that's where this paper came from. So, this is, in essence, application of, of that sort of methodology. Um, and in particular, the development of... of the extremal risk measure that comes with that and this kind of tail-based hedging term which is you know in on one in one limit it reduces to the standard hedge ratio and well it kind of develops a bit more generally as you vary the parameter as you focus more and more on the tails of the distribution so yeah talking about ldi because you focus particularly on on those portfolios in uh, in the latest paper uh, what is particular about the portfolio optimization in presence of fat tails for for those portfolios um so specifically for ldr or for any kind of liability driven um stuff so i don't just necessarily mean liability driven so it's also if you if you if you've got any 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 kind of client facing books or any 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 kind of derivatives book or etf book or anything like that uh, so you've basically got a portion of the portfolio that you need to hedge um, and the main difference is in the form of the hedging term that you get so the kind of classical hedging term is in essence just covariance or renormalized covariance uh, but what we get here is these power covariances which in essence when you're taking the power what you're doing is you're in essence putting the magnifying glass on larger and larger returns so you're kind of if you want filtering out the small returns and you're focusing on the larger returns so in essence the hedging terms you get here are hedging terms which are geared towards hedging large returns mm-hmm. of the liability um, so in practice, obviously, you know, any kind of LDI situation, you've got, well, potential for fat-tailed returns on the liability side and potential for the fat-tailed returns on the asset side. So ideally, first of all, you would like the fat-tails in your assets to neutralize the fat-tails in the liability. And then secondary to that, any fat-tails in the assets that you can't neutralize, you, you want to diversify. So that's, let's say, the basic crux mm-hmm. of where this paper is going. And, and, and the final result is, I guess, unsurprisingly, Right, you hedge what you can hedge, what what you can hedge, um, and you diversify what you cannot hedge. Yeah, and talking about the methods more specifically, how, how does uh, your optimization technique works? Uh, so the optimization is actually, you know, fairly straightforward. I mean, you can do 
because the, the, the main idea was to keep lots of analytical insights. So, you know, the um, optimization, once you've created your decomposition into the components, then the allocations come out analytically pretty much. So, you know, in essence, you've retained the interpretability. You know exactly which components you're allocating mm. to. You know exactly how much you're you're allocating to them based based on the risk-adjusted return expectation, and you know exactly how much you're allocating based on the hedging properties. So that's you know the nice thing we're kind of trying to avoid use of optimizers in trading because you know optimizers can go wrong, optimizers can get stuck in local minima, uh, they can do all sorts of things. So we kind of generally, you know, even at the at the expense of some accuracy, we generally tend to go for kind of more transparent, more kind of um, how shall I put it, it's rule of thumb methods. Mm-hmm. And and this fits into that quite nicely because, you know, like I say, once you've got your decomposition of the, of the asset universe into components, um, then everything else is basically, you know, just, just fairly simple kind of, you know, two-line calculations. I see, I see. So uh, the technique is based on a risk measure that you introduced uh, called extreme deviation. Um, that depends on a specific car- uh, parameter, K, and actually 2K, that is uh, part of the uh, specification. Uh, how does how does the measure work? How do you uh, decide uh, the value of K, and what does it mean for the uh, optimization itself? Uh, so the risk measure doesn't actually depend on the K. The risk measure uh, is in the limit of K infinity. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the specific. Um, so this is the extreme deviation, where it's basically the extremal absolute return of, mm-hmm. of the um of the underlying component. Um, so, uh, but coming back to how does one choose K? Um, so the answer is, obviously it, it, it's up to you, right? Because you've got, you've got the ability to vary this K. So on one end, you're doing Gaussian optimization. So you're in essence uh, suppressing the variance. On the, in the other limit, you, you're doing the extremal um, optimization. So you're suppressing the largest returns. And then you've got this kind of slide sliding table in between where you can focus on different parts of the tails. Um, so you kind of almost have a magnifying glass which you can kind of walk through uh, different parts of your distribution. Uh, so in practice, um, what I found works is you want to see what the portfolio looks like for a range of different values of K. So um, what you typically see is um, it converges pretty fast. So you see some fairly rapid change as you move from the Gaussian end into the fat tail end. But then after a certain exponent, and, and that's not a huge number, we're talking double digits, like you know values of 10 to 50. Um, after about 10 or 50, it pretty much flattens out. And then after mm-hmm. that, increasing K further pretty much does nothing for you. So you've got this you know, fairly, fairly quick transition from Gaussian through fat tailed to extremal. Um, now, which one you should use? Obviously, that depends on, on many different things. It depends on the type of portfolio, depends on w- what you're optimizing for, depends on your risk appetite, depends on your client's risk appetite. It, it depends on many different things, right? Um, but I guess the key here is, well, first of all, you've got a bit of a choice here. And secondly, it, it's fairly easy to generate some intuition and some kind of high-level view of what, let's say, different choices would mean in practice. And when you set K to uh, infinity, uh, what does it mean for the optimization itself? What do you see on the portfolio? So K going to infinity is essentially minimax optimization. So you're trying to minimize the maximum deviation. So you, mm-hmm. you're saying we want the largest bump that's ever going to happen. We want That's what we want to minimize. Um, so it's a kind of, again, a smooth 
um, family of, of, of portfolios. So on one end, we've got a Gaussian, which is, let's say, root mean square optimization. On the other end, we've got minimax, and we've got a smooth curve in between. Hmm. And uh, this is applied to LDIs, as we as we said, but not only, right? You were telling me this yeah, is absolutely. applicable I mean, to, to anything. Pretty yeah, much. absolutely. I mean, this paper obviously focuses on LDI, so that, that's the specific kind of innovation in this paper. But yes, in, in the kind of or the original motivation was not linked to LDI at all, and the, the original link was unconstrained portfolio opti optimization, which, which includes nonlinear products. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it, it, is this implemented anywhere now? Um, uh, definitely in the unconstrained world, it definitely is, and uh, there's several hedge funds that are doing different variants of that. On the LDI side, um, we do have some insurance clients who have been, again, implementing something very similar or something based on this as well. Yeah. And so the end point of this procedure is actually having a diversified portfolio. How how does it look like? Like uh, how is the diversification different from a portfolio optimized with let's say variant based uh, and uh, and one with the minimax? Yeah. Um, so there's two different things here. So one is the actual choice of components, so the actual diversification components, and the other one is the allocation to these components. Um, so I guess, I mean, you know, in the Gaussian world, what when we say diversified, what we mean is we want the components to be orthogonal. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, if they're orthogonal in the Gaussian world, they're independent. Um, when you've got fat tails, that's no longer true, right? You can have things that are orthogonal, but that, that are not, no longer independent. So typically any method that tries to extract independent components starts from orthogonal components, mm -hmm. but then it starts looking for, okay, out of these orth orthogonal components, which one maximizes our uh, particular measure of independence. Because sometimes it's not possible to actually get independence because sometimes these factors mix non-linearly. Non so you can't really expect that some uh, linear combination, static linear combination of your, of, um, um, of, of your underlings will be independent. But you can always maximize a particular measure of independence. So in essence, you know, on, on the component side, basically PCA, which is where we would end let's say in classical finance, it's just a pre-processing step. So that's just a starting point to actually get these independent components. Um, the second part of it is the allocation. And again, what's different in kind of, let's say, real world assets and liabilities is that the distributions are not self-similar. So what I mean by that, obviously a Gaussian distribution, right, if you diversify them on one scale, you've pretty much diversified them on all scales. Whatever happens, they will remain mm -hmm. diversified. Whereas these things, are different, right? I mean, the way they d behave on one scale may be very different to how they behave on different scales. And then if you're looking at some static allocation, what you actually have to do is you have to choose the scale on which you want to diversify them. Um, so, you know, there's no hope of actually finding some static allocation that will work on every possible scale. So you kind of need to make your choice and you need to live with it. And, you know, if, if your sizes are such that you get to kind of the, the, to reallocate dynamically, you know, that's great, and that's good for you. Obviously, beyond certain size, that becomes unfeasible or too expensive. And there you just need to, let's say, find an allocation that works and, and you know, find a way to be happy with it. Mm -mm. And uh, going back to the, your to your previous works, uh, what did you develop in uh, your previous papers that have been picked up and used for, uh, for this new method? Um, so the, the general approach of um, independence 
uh, fat-tailed components. So that came from from the first two papers. So you know, not just sticking with um, or orthogonality as a measure of independence, but going beyond that towards you know actual statistical independence. Um, and then the family of allocations, which go from linear allocation in the Gaussian end to um, well um, step function allocation or um, hurdle rate allocations at at the um, at the extremal end. So that all came from the previous paper. So the, the innovation in this paper is particularly the hedging term and you know the use of that when a part of the portfolio is fixed and needs to be hedged. Mm, I see. Uh, what's next? Uh, <laughs> do you have um, do you have any uh, continuation of this stream of research in um, mind? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, obviously, so everything so far is pretty much based on um, the idea that that uh, these distributions are static. Um, so now I'm kind of moving away from stationarity and and looking at, in essence, how do you ensure that these components are as stationary as possible so that, you know, any parameter estimation remains valid as long out of sample as, as mm. possible, um, and, and generally the implications of non-stationarity to that sort of thing. So that hopefully, I mean, if I find some time, you know, that that should be written up and, and somewhere, you know, hopefully in a few months. But you know, <laughs> no, no promises. All right, uh, keep me posting on that. Absolutely. Uh, well, yeah. Before be, before we go, I wanted to ask you obviously about the uh, the eye crisis that happened a few months ago. Um, now, that is probably not the result of a portfolio optimization uh, problem. Uh, it was basically the decision based on the decision of hedging or not. Uh, but could, could you uh, give me a comment on on what happened and uh, maybe how? how a more rigorous strategy could have helped. Yeah, I mean, like you said, the LDI crisis was primarily a funding gap between a collateralized leg and the uncollateralized leg. So the funding gap opened when the inflation went up, interest rates went up, the guilds went down. Now, okay, the liabilities went down, but that's okay because, you know, guilds are collateralized and the liabilities are uncollateralized. Um, so the funding gap opened. So in a sense, you know, that wasn't so much a mark-to-market crisis as much as it was a funding um, gap. Um, having said that, obviously, you know, the problem is when you've got that sort of situation, what you need to do is, you know, I, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's easy to kind of be critical after the fact, right? I mean, you know, we're all kind of, you know, we're all very, very wise in, in hindsight, right? Uh, but certainly there wasn't there wasn't a cushion, or the cushion wasn't big enough. There was too much uh, focus on neutralizing small market moves, mm. and that ate up too much capital, probably unnecessarily. Um, so I would say, with hindsight, probably a wiser decision would have been to focus on hedging larger market moves, such as the one that, well, in the end created the crisis. Maybe let small-scale volatility run, maybe use some of that capital for something else, maybe uh, you know, have it more liquid, maybe have it available for cushioning any, any kind of funding gap. Um, you know, like I say, I mean, after the fact, it, it's always easy to be wise. Um, but certainly I think, you know, the interest of that, this sort of approach that, that is described in this paper is it allows kind of any hedging to be very focused, right? So you, you can kind of focus on the part of the distribution, you can focus on the set of returns you want to hedge against. Mm -hmm. And that means, you know, the actual capital you need to allocate for hedging is sometimes quite a bit smaller because, you know, your, your targeting is not a blunderbuss approach. You're not trying to cover everything. You're just trying to cover kind of, you know, some, some you know, fairly discrete um, sets of scenarios. 
So in that sense, you know, you've got plenty of capital left over for, let's say, cushioning the impact of any funding gaps, for pursuing returns, for anything else that you might need extra capital for. Um, would this sort of approach have, you know, completely obliterated the LDI crisis? I don't know. I mean, like I say, you know, after the fact, it, it's always easy to be to be wise. But I think it certainly offers um, a new set of tools and, you know, some, some interesting opportunities in that direction. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. 